of, of who you are to our lives. Use as a guide, uh, a direction, a map, Lord, for uh, our day-to-day living, our step-by-step walk, Lord. We come to you and rejoice that the God of all creation chose to reveal himself to man. And most importantly, Lord, through your Son, the complete and final revelation, that picture of, of your grace, your mercy, your love, your sacrifice, that we might know you and have you as our Father eternally. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Continuing in our study on the book, of, uh, study of prophecy from last week, and uh, we'll be looking uh, first this morning at First Corinthians, uh, the twelfth uh, chapter, and the, some of the, the verses, of course, will be up on the screen, but they're also going to be on the back of your bulletin this morning. A couple of other verses with them that I'll be using this morning as well. Um, before I get started this morning, I'd like to uh, give you an update, just a, a kind of an exciting thing to be able to share, and I was trying to think of where the best time to do it, but as we enter the Word of God and how powerful the Word of God is to change lives and His promises to touch people's lives, I thought this would be a good time to share. Uh, many of us have been praying for uh, uh, Jack and, and, and I think it's Dorothy, uh, uh, the uh, uh, parents of Sarah uh, Frawley, uh, Bob's uh, in-laws, and we've been praying, some of us, for over 30 years uh, for their salvation, and this last week, uh, Jack accepted the Lord. And so uh, that's a, an answer to prayer, obviously. It's a rejoicing time. Mom then turned around and recommitted her life to the Lord as well. So uh, it's been an exciting week. There goes the goosebumps. Uh, it's been an exciting week for them, uh, but it's also been a very difficult week. Um, uh, Bob's father-in-law has uh, esophageal cancer. It's gotten to the stage where uh, there's not much they can do for him. Uh, they went over to Reading to, uh, to the hospital there this last week, uh, and basically they sent him back over here. Uh, to the hospital first and then to home, and he's back uh, out at the Bob and Sarah's little ranch out there in Hydesville. Uh, and uh, so just to keep them in prayer, uh, they've called in hospice. And so uh, I thought we'd take a special moment just to say thank you to the Lord and, and to pray again this morning. Father, we, say, uh, we see, <laughs> obviously, Lord, I think of how many times we say this, but Bob reminded me this week, he said, Obviously, our time is not your time, and that you, Lord, are never late with anything that you do. We look at it and say, why couldn't have this happened years ago? But, Lord, the exact right time, all things put together, and to see that yeah, come to know you and... and uh, to see Sarah's mom to come to recommit herself to you. We say thank you. Thank you again for your grace that you've poured out. We ask, Lord, now that through Bob and others that come in contact, 
uh, over these next days and weeks uh, can give them encouragement and confidence uh, as, as they uh, rest in you through some difficult uh, times right now, Lord. We don't hesitate to pray for the miracle at this point that still that would bring healing, and we confidently leave that in your hands. And Father, again, we thank you as, as we open your word, and uh, we rejoice in, 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 in our salvation and the salvation you shared with us. And we think now just one more time of all those in our families and in our acquaintances that we've been praying for some, in some cases for years and years cause us to not grow worried. We take this as an encouragement to be faithful in prayer. In Jesus' name. Well, here we are in 1 Corinthians, and the reason why I'm starting with 1 Corinthians is simply to note uh, that here's a, a scripture that talks about uh, prophecy in a sense as a gift, and so uh, we'll look starting with uh, verse 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. All Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And at that point, he goes into what must be ahead of all things in reference to the gifts. And he, go, and he even starts it with that idea that if I, had the, if I speak of the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And he goes on to emphasize that the first and foremost thing that should be happening in a believer's life isn't a spiritual gift, but a spiritual fruit of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a changing in how our, our character, our attitude, and how we respond to people, a chance transition into receiving the love of God and giving the love of God, receiving God's forgiveness, giving God's forgiveness. It's just, it's a, it's a full picture. And before anything else happens, Paul's saying that is the most important thing. If none of the gifts happened, this would still need to be there. So I just wanted to emphasize that again as we, as we start. Ephesians chapter 4 uh, also uh, basically gives us a, a similar uh, picture uh, of the gifts. In, uh, starting with the 11th verse. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So a second reference to the, the gift of, of apostles. And in Romans chapter 12, we've already talked about this, but in referencing the gifts, uh, uh, Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Again, emphasizing there's the gift of prophecy. And in the first list of, of, uh, of scriptures and gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have, uh, starting with verse 8, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance or the, uh, the word or the, 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 the gift of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, 
to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who appoints to each one individually as he wills. Again, emphasizing who is it that appoints and gives the spirit, uh, the spiritual gifts? Well, he says it's, it's fine to desire them, and, and even to desire, you know, the idea, he says, to desire prophecy. Uh, but that idea of, of, of who gives it, is everybody going to have that, the, the, the same gift? He absolutely, the implication, again, of, of where he says, is everybody going to have this particular gift or this one or this one or this one or this one, is that no. It's together, the body together, the unity of the body together in love, expressing the diverse gifts, making up each other's shortcomings. In other words, uh, Christ has the gifts un, uh, unlimited, completely, but none of us do. And so we need each other for the fullness of the body of Christ to function. And each of us seeking to do what we can and, I, and, and we'll get into later as to people when they say, you know, well, what's my gift? How am I going to know? This type of thing. Uh, but the issue right now I just want you to get is, is as we're looking at the specific, some of these specific gifts as listed in Romans. So obviously, prophecy being listed, it seems, in, in all four of these places, uh, while some of them are, are, are not listed in all the lists, prophecy is. And so it has this sense of, of importance. The office, uh, I, I call it the office of prophecy, I believe it's specific. Um, the word prophet, in a very broad sense, in a general sense, says one who speaks for another. In a more biblical context, one who speaks with authority from God for God to God's people. And not always God's people, but, but sometimes to to those who are not listening to God, but God is, is wanting to address. Look at the Old Testament, the number of times the, the prophets got into the, the face of, of even kings uh, that were uh, not following after God. So one who speaks with authority from God, for, speaking for God, from God, uh, to uh, the believers, to the church, but also... Uh, sometimes to, to the world at large, as far as we've seen in Scripture and in the Old Testament especially. Prophecy is, is given some, some very clear descriptions as far as uh, how to look at it. For instance, in, uh, second, uh, in second Peter uh, chapter 2, See, verses 19 through 22. I think I got that mixed up. Excuse me, chapter 1. We have something more sure, the prophetic word. And Paul, uh, Peter just speaking after that he just talked about being an eyewitness to the Mount of Transfiguration and seeing Christ, seeing Moses, seeing Elijah, meaning the confirmation, those, the law of Moses, the law, the prophets, Elijah, those are confirmation that they're real for him. He says, yet we have something even more sure than that. 
the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this corresponds with what Timothy was instructed in uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy in chapter 3. Use this scripture frequently, but just uh, again to, to remind you of its content. All scripture, verse 16 of chapter 3 of, of 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. We're also, what we have is, is, and we're told both in the Old and the New Testament to use it, is we have a, what do I want to call it, a, a standard, a measuring rod, a, 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 the, God, the God's word as the source to evaluate prophecy. Even Old and New Testament, uh, they looked at it to see, were they telling the truth? Were they... Uh, are, are, does it coincide with what God has already told us that has been confirmed? And these kinds of things are our way of understanding, is a prophet true? Is a prophet sincere? And so knowing that God's word is God-breathed, we're allowed to come here with confidence to know this is the standard that has to be met. question that comes then is, is prophecy still for today? And I'm going to only be able to share this for you as it comes through my experience and understanding and teaching and study that I've got, because this is certainly a controversial issue in the sense of a lot of great scholars in different camps as to how to view contemporary or modern-day prophecy. I see prophecy, first and foremost, as what I've already described to you over the last several weeks, as being God-breathed, his word, and it has been tied up into the scripture. And in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, we have uh, a scripture that I've shared with you already, but I'd like to share with you again in reference to the idea of, of, of the, the, the foundation that God has built. Paul writes in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you have two kinds of thoughts here. One is first the foundation of a building that has been laid, that's done. There's nothing left to be added to it. What's being built on the foundation is the, the temple of God, the, the church, the body of Christ. We're being built on the top of this foundation. 
Where does the foundation come for as far as the teaching goes? It comes from the apostles. It comes from the prophets. And it's been locked into this, this absolute cornerstone foundation fixed. Anytime you see the idea of the cornerstone being in there, it fixes it, puts it together in such a way it's, it's measured. It's, it's exactly the way it needs to be. And we're told very distinctly in both, Revel well, specifically in Revelation, chapter 22, we're not to add anything. We're not to take away anything. Now, some people say, well, that's only the book of Revelation, but the way it's capped, I feel it applies to all of Scripture. I don't think it's a coincidence that it's at the very end in the sense of the way it's put there. But even if it were there and only there uh, and to apply that way, you still have Galatians chapter 1 talking about another gospel. And basically what Paul is saying there is that if anything comes along and distorts in any way what has been presented to you as the gospel of Christ, where do we get the information for the gospel of Christ? From the foundation. So if anything comes to you that would alter that in any way, shape, or form, Don't pay any attention to it. In fact, he goes as far as to say anathema, which is a very strong statement. It's one of the few Greek words I probably know uh, based on, on just saying it and knowing it. But it means to be condemned in the most harsh way would, would be basically be damned. When I look at prophecy, I have a very narrow definition. In fact, in a discussion the other evening talking with more than a few people with it about it, I realized I do have a very narrow definition. I'm not sure I want to stray from that because it allows me to see clearly, again, the ability to rest on this foundation. And that narrow definition is to basically say, is there any more God-breathed prophetic word being given? And from everything that I can see, from the emphasis of what it means to be God-breathed with its total accuracy application, must coincide 100% with the word of God, no variance, this type of thing, the answer would be, I don't think so. I don't believe so. I believe that when we look at Scripture, it is sufficient to supply everything we need to know about salvation, everything that we need to know about walking and growing in the Lord. What I didn't ever really put into context, because there's so many different groups that have a different idea about that, as far as, you know, is there a modern-day prophetic context of, of, of looking at things, was that almost everybody, no matter what camp they're in, actually agree with what I just said, basically. And that is there is only one word of God. There is only one foundation. It is laid by the apostles and the prophets. And in that framework, there is nothing left to be added to it. And if anything is adding to it or changing it or, or twisting it, or whatever, it's, it's at 
at nothing less than, than, than bad teaching and, and could be false prophecy and all the things that the Scripture warns us to be concerned about. And it seems as I was listening the other night and as I was, went and looked up again some of the Scriptures and some of the references, I realized, yes, over and over and over again, that is a consi consistent feature. And I'll use the terms in their generic, general way they're used today, whether they are non-charismatic or charismatics, they agree there is only one foundation, the word of God. So the question then has to come, at least for me, because not only as I see it in Scripture, but I've, uh, some things that have happened in my life, does God still reveal himself, inspire, if you will, in a supernatural way? And by that, I mean using the, the, a kind of definition that, for me, was given with what's called the, the utterance of knowledge or the word of knowledge. Let me, let me just give you this definition. It, often defined, it is often defined as information God reveals to somebody that they could not have naturally known. Okay? Sounds a lot like prophecy, too, doesn't it? Does God still do that? There are some that say, not only is prophecy not for today, but the gift of tongues is not for today. Uh, the word of knowledge is not for today. Uh, there, you know, there's other things, you know, no, the, the, the gift of healings, this type of thing. And so I started looking at this, and, I, and I, I, this has been going on for months now, reviewing this in the sense of trying to... to piece together what it is I know is in here so that there's a way to explain it in this much space. <laughs> and, and, and it's not been easy because I don't want you to misunderstand or to be prepared to turn around and say, oh, well, those people must be wrong or those people must be wrong because that's not my intent, nor do I have the skills or the knowledge to be able to really do that. But I can show you why I am where I am with what I believe and, and see. I have to sh share with you this. One of the things that I never bothered to look at before until uh, several months ago was arguments from the charismatic side in reference to modern-day prophets quoting some of the people that I quote constantly from Scripture and, and references that I had always considered would not be, they would probably say, no, I don't think, or even adamantly say, the gift of prophecy is not for today. One of them would be Charles Spurgeon. In his own autobiography, he speaks of uh, two specific instances and he says that there were dozens more that he could speak about in his ministry. I'll just share with you one of them. From the pulpit, on a Sunday morning, he addresses a person in the congregation and says, the gloves that you have 
are not your own. They belong to your employer. Now, I don't know the context of the sermon, but I'm sure that it, there was a, something going on within the framework of that. But still, he says that wasn't something that, that, that he knew or heard at the doorway or anything else. It was something that came to him while he was preaching. How do we take that and look at it and say, well, is that, a, uh, you know, is that really a prophetic word? It was true. In fact, the young man came up to him and said, please, I mean, it's an interesting story. He says, please, please, I'm, I'm, I'm pierced, you know, I'm going to paraphrase. I'm basically, I'm pierced to the heart with this. Please don't tell my mother. <laughs> uh, sound like a young kid, you know? I, I have never stolen anything from my master before, and I never will again. Now, it doesn't tell, I, 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 don't, I don't go any further, but that, just to say that, that yes, the, the, it was validated. And like I said, Spurgeon goes on shortly after that to, to comment that, that in addition to uh, another that he mentions, but, but that there were multiple times and that he knew of instances with other pastors as well. That's one thing I share with you this morning. Another one that I shared uh, last night with the, the, the people I was talking with that we were sharing together in the leadership, I have a personal experience. And it's one of those things that somebody would say, well, you know, was it inspired or not, or did you, you know, however you want to look at it. I'll tell you what I believe as I go through it. I'm involved in a congregation that's getting ready to build a new facility. Not only are they going to build a new facility, but they're going to build an extensive education Christian education uh, ministry. I was redirected from being an associate pastor, basically, to being absolutely focused on the building and establishing of this education ministry. That was my whole ministry. And I can say with absolute surety, and <laughs> looking back, I was gung-ho. Okay, I was... Uh, to, to, I think my wife would confess and say that I was driven would be lightly putting it. And uh, early December, I was praying, reading scripture, in a quiet time, and I was impressed to look up a particular scripture out of First Chronicles. And the scripture said very clearly, and it referred to David, that David wasn't going to build the house of the Lord. That there was too much blood on his hands. And by the way, the, the blood on his hands that's being talked about was because he had been a man of war. Okay? God was not dishonoring him in any way here. 
He was saying, your thoughts are good, David. I appreciate the idea that this is what you want to do, but you're not the one that's going to do it. Your son is. And so we have this, 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 this picture, though. What stuck in my mind was not to build the house of the Lord. And I thought, well, it can't apply to me. I'm serious. This is the way I thought. It can't apply to me. I'm too important to this. I don't know why, but it must apply to one of the other pastors or, or you know, the senior pastor maybe. A few weeks later, two Sundays before Christmas, I, 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 I remember these days very specifically. A missionary from Romania is preaching in our pulpit. I'm sitting in the fourth row. I've had nothing to do with the worship service this morning. And he says, in the midst of his sermon, Bob, this scripture is for you. You know what? I, I said this the other night too. You know what it's like when all of a sudden somebody from the pulpit points to you and said, This is for you, and you realize everybody's looking at you? <laughs> and you're sitting there thinking, What does he know? <laughs> And it was the same scripture from, from uh, First Chronicles. Scratching my head a little more seriously now, thinking I'm not, I'm not sure what it means, but really quite candidly pushing it aside very quickly and getting back into my focus. Week after Christmas, went to Southern California to visit my wife's family and... Uh, the uh, uh, a church that we had gone to, that I had started going to uh, when I first became a Christian, uh, had uh, been involved in a kind of a, uh, a church plant, and I, I was going where my friend was still going to that. And very, again, from the contemporary way of using the word, very non-charismatic. Um, Ron came up to me after the service and says, Bob, I really feel that this is a scripture for, that the Lord would like to give you, that, you, that, might, that might help you. It was in First Chronicles, but it wasn't from chapter 22. It was from chapter 28, and I'm thinking, ha, saved. <laughs> Same scripture, just a repeat, literally. Okay. Lord, you've got my attention. I'm not sure what's going on. Get home, and I find out that my stepmom, who is basically a terminal cancer patient, who went back east to live with her daughter, had been sent home by her daughter, which is the area I had just been in. Just after we left, she had been sent home because her daughter couldn't get along with her. They were constantly arguing with each other, and uh, they, she just couldn't take it, so she put her on a plane and set her home. Well, there's nobody there to take care of her. My dad's passed away. Uh, I'm not sure what to do, what my responsibility is. She is my stepmom. I mean, that's her daughter that's supposed to be taking care of this, right? And uh, went down in January over Martin Luther King's weekend, drove all the way to Southern California and back in those three days to see her and realized that she 
was incapable of taking care of herself. She could get around, but she needed help constantly. She needed, she needed somebody to be there basically 24-7, or all night especially. So I uh, came home confused, angry at my stepsister, And I said very succinctly in my devotional time, in my private time, my prayer time, and possibly to Kathy as well, I can't go down there. I don't know what to do. Everything that I've got has, has been committed to this project. I've got to see it through. God drops into my lap literally. It's just... As soon as I'm saying that to myself, he drops into my thinking. Matthew chapter 7 and the word Corbin. I don't know how many of you know what goes on there. Or Mark, excuse me, Mark chapter 7, Corbin. Looked it up. Jesus was chastising the Pharisees for not taking care of their mothers and fathers by saying that all their resources were committed to ministry. And it was called Corbin, was the word they used. Again, I get goosebumps when I share this because I'm both convicted <laughs> and somewhat humbled, a lot humbled. Because I realized at that point that I wasn't pursuing, you know, obviously God had been, God had been setting the stage for weeks for me to grasp this. First, something that he, I, I'm confident, I feel the, with absolute confidence as I stand before you, it was inspirational. First Chronicles chapter 22. Second, I did not, had not met this pastor and came from Romania other than that morning. He knew me not. He did not know what was coming ahead, and he did not know where I was. And I, he didn't know that I'd had this scripture. I hadn't shared it with anybody except Kathy. And it was on target. Ron, one of my good friends, been Christians together since, we, since I've been a Christian was so out of character for him to do this. But he was obedient, and he did it, because he just felt driven that this was something he had to say to me. And then, everything else that unfolded after that. And one more time, as I'm trying to avoid this with everything in me, because, like I said, I, I, I'm saying this is my stepmom. It's her daughter's problem. Not mine. And yet, Bonnie, my sister, had thrown up her arms and just said, I can't do this. This wasn't the first time that this had happened. And believe me, I know my stepmom is a hard, hard woman to live with. She had a very caustic tongue. The best compliment you'd normally get out of her was thank you, but. And then something was not right about what you'd just done for her. I 
just, I, I <laughs> talk about it, Jonah, I did not want to go. So what does God do? He brings me another scripture, and I'm, it's as clear as a bell. Somebody says, well, you've read those scriptures. You've probably taught on them and stuff like that. That's not, I may, that may be true, but he's bringing to mind then, to knowledge then, something. But he's still, it's the path of this together that has it orchestrated. March 1st of that year, my, Kathy and I and our kids moved south. We didn't have a place to live. My kids could not live in the, the mobile home park. It was an adult-only park. Kathy stayed with her mom and with the three kids. I stayed in a 750-foot square, square, square foot facility home, one bathroom. And I didn't have a way of paying for any of this. But I knew by the way all of this had come together, I knew this is what I had to do. And I'll have to be honest with you, the only thing I can say in with, with anything sure about this was that I knew that I knew that I knew I needed to do this. Even good Christian friends were saying, this is dumb. You don't have any resources. I said, I know, but I've got to do this. And I've got to do it now. God provided the work. He provided the resources. He provided the income that was necessary. He provided the opportunity in some very strange ways uh, in order for me to ultimately, even as my mom was dying the last two months of my life, to be able to be with her literally 24-7 and still have some income. God orchestrated it all. Now, in the midst of that, can I say that there was anything revelatory going on there as far as God communicating with members of the body of Christ? Was there something inspired going on there? I'm telling you, I think so. Yes, I believe it. So how am I going to rationalize and deal with this as I'm saying the prophetic over here is sealed within the foundation of, 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 of the apostles and the prophets and the word, and it's a done deal. And at the same time, say, there's something inspirational, you know, if, sounding prophetic, if you will, going on still. Well, for me, the part of the charismatic movement that deals with this actually identifies this as a word of knowledge. And I realize as I'm going through this, isn't it immensely interesting? And these aren't the only things that I've observed as well in ministry. I, I feel like Spurgeon at that point, I could give you so many other details. That I realize there is something that goes on within the work of God and, his, and the Holy Spirit within the framework of the church that is inspirational, that is going on, that God uses, that must be, however, always taken back to his word to be confirmed, authenticated, and worked out. Obviously, when, when he dropped in my lap, Mark chapter 7, Corbin, God was taking me right back to Scripture and saying, it's a done deal. No answers or buts about it. Here's what is. I didn't have to. I really, it was it. I didn't have to. The argument with God was over. The argument with my friends was over. It was, a, it, was, it was there to be done, and I knew it. So I see situations where God gets involved in future events. 
He has the insight to be able to go from one person to another in a sense of Spurgeon to this young man and have the insight of a man's heart and a specific need and situation that needs to be addressed? Is it prophetic or the word of knowledge? Well, depending on who you study, who you read, and who you listen to, you'll get two different word answers. And I realize it has a lot to do with what's on your belief window, and I can't help it. Well, there are certain things that I come from out of a secessionist background, which means the gifts are gone kind of thing, at least the, the miraculous gifts, and, uh, and, and realizing that that wasn't true, and, and, and wrestling with building up this, this picture. People coming from the other side who think all the gifts are active today and, and all of these things going on in discussion. The one thing I know is, is that we're in more agreement than we are in disagreement. I've been blown away over the last few weeks of how true that is. So here's another way I started to figure this out. I need to protect God's word. This is one of the things that's, that's been instilled. The, the, the sovereignty of God and his word, the sufficiency of his word to take care of everything, and that the word is done, complete, and inspired, God breathed. I've got to protect that. This isn't years ago, folks. This is the last few weeks. I need to protect God's word. And it was almost like a horse being directed. It was like, whoa. <laughs> Me? Protect God's word, question mark? Yeah, I need to defend a, in a fallen world what God has done. That's what apologetics, uh, bringing a defense to, you know, is all about. And Paul is excellent at that. But to protect it, God does this. He protects his word. He's done it from the beginning to the end. And, I am, and I'm confident, even through the process of the canon, God was protecting his word as he brought together the scriptures we would have for the death. I'm confident that he was protecting his word. So from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, to this day until he comes, he doesn't need me to protect his word. He does need me to study his word. He's told me that's what I need to do in order to grow in him. He wants me to, to wrestle with his word when I don't understand something completely and to never give up wrestling with it and to absolutely entrench myself in those things that I know are absolutely true that we all agree on and when, they, and when there is a disagreement, we can say, at that point, back. <laughs> the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The, the sufficiency of Scripture, and only Scripture. The grace and grace alone. These things that we can agree on. It's like the, the picture of people that say... Uh, We've got to do something with this generation. This is, if we don't do something with the generation, it'll be the end of the church. That's not in our pocket either. That's God's work. I'm called to be very specific wherever he puts me about doing certain things, yes. 
And people who are getting so caught up again right now about end times, I found it absolutely amusing. Realized that when, when I first became a Christian, end times was really, really a big thing. All the, the, the Thief in the Night movies, the whole series of four Thief in the Night movies came out. Went and saw them all. <laughs> Not at my church, though, because they didn't show them that way because they, 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 they conflicted with some theology. I had to go to the Assembly of God church to see them. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 all of this going on because Israel in 1948 had become a nation again. And all of a sudden, Scripture was coming alive out of the Old Testament, the, the rebirthing of a nation. And I believe there's a prophetic word being fulfilled in that. Don't, and so everybody's saying, well, this generation will not die until they see the coming of the Lord. And they were looking at that and saying, well, what's a generation? Well, the Old Testament says 40 years. So 40 years. 1988 comes. <laughs> 1948, 1988. I'm serious. You know, we, we don't know what day. We're not saying what time. 1988. <laughs> we're going to give it a year. And there's no small number of teachers that were caught into that. Well, it didn't happen. There's a number of recalculations trying to go on. But I don't think those were prophetic words. It didn't happen. By the way, that error didn't chastise or throw out everybody. It just means they didn't understand they got it wrong. Well, you know, there's another term for generation. It's, I don't think they use the term generation, but it's, it's the one that's being used now for this new push. Three score and ten is the years of a man, unless God blesses him with more. How many is three score and ten? Seventy. What's seventy plus 1948? 2018. There's a whole, well, it's kind of, right now it's kind of a small group, but I see it moving. <laughs> it's the generation of 70 years, and here it comes. I want to suggest to you, we can get all sidetracked in all sorts of pictures and prophecies and things like this. When it comes to the end time stuff, this is, I know it's a rabbit trail and a side note, but please, understand this. It's end times for you. You're not going to get another generation lifetime to figure out what you're going to do with the Lord and to live for him. It's generation now, the end for you. It's end times for you, Doug. Phil, it's end times. This generation is, we're in the midst of our end times. And it should, you know, the fact that there's a, when Christ returning, yeah, that's exciting, and I want to get enthusiastic about it, and I like to think about it, and I like to talk about it, and I like to dwell on it and to figure out stuff. But the reality is, if he doesn't come, that's not my problem. That's, God's got that fixed, and it says, I don't know when that is. And it seems like every generation has something to focus on that makes it end times. The beheading of Christians. Well, Paul was beheaded. Rome was the Antichrist. End times was on them. The Catholic Church and the Pope. I, I, you can go on and on and on, over and over and over again, things that have been in times and brought you know, this, the teaching together. I just want to suggest to you, 
it's always end times for the generation you're in. And while I really don't fully understand how all of the end time thing works, I know it's coming. And it's going to come with a sense of the, the, the rapture and the church and, and being caught up with Christ and the marriage feast and all the things that God has promised us. So see, people will say, why don't you spend a lot of time on end times? Now you know why. I don't. I tend to preach what comes through the scripture that I'm going through as it comes up. So I'm really, I'm dealing with this, this picture of God's protecting his word from me. What, what's my job? Well, to, to, to defend it, yes. And then I realized, what has God put me in the church doing most of my life lately, anyway? Last 40 years, 30 years. Teaching. A few things I need to be aware of. One is that God puts a warning with a teaching. He says, you're going to be held accountable double for what you teach. And I realized as a teacher of God's word, I am to, now I figured it out, I am to protect those I teach. I, with a teaching that I can confidently lay before God and give to you. If I can't answer something in scripture definitively, I tell you. And to the best of my ability, I tell you where I'm coming from and why. And to do this, I must test, as Scripture tells us to, and I'll look at those two Scriptures in a second, I must test what I read. I must test what I study. I must test the information given to me as I listen in this great audio and video listening age that we're in. I must test the influences including mentors gone by. I must test my belief window constantly. And I believe that we're given an absolute clear picture that this testing is not just, it's for everything that we come by that influences our life. So it's not just for me. John writes in his first epistle, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming and now is in the world already. And people will look at that and say, well, it's easy just to say, oh, I, I believe in Jesus and not really do that. But it's really not the emphasis here as much as the emphasis is we can test things. If I went to the state legislature in Sacramento and said, do you as a legislature confess Jesus Christ come in the flesh? What are they going to say to me? Okay. It's a harsh thing to put it this way, but it says in there of the Antichrist, meaning if they're not with Christ, they, they, they can't be, it's, it's one or the other kind of thing. I'm not saying that the state of the legislature is a demonic organization, you know, and 
conspiratory against God, any of that kind of stuff. Please don't go there. All I'm saying is, is that when they reject to confess Christ as the core of their value system, they're saying our value system is ungodly. That's all. I, you know. And Paul says, test everything. Or John says, test everything. So when somebody says, I have a prophecy, or if they say, I have a word of knowledge, if they say, I think the Lord is telling you to do this or to do that, first off, by the way, a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this, if the Lord wanted me to know these things, he would tell me. He didn't need you to figure, yeah, I don't, you know. I already told you how that works. He tried telling me. He had to get two other people in my life with the same purpose and direction to get it right. But still, we are to test it. Bring it to the word of God and see. Does it confess the Lord? Does it stand with his word? Does it, does it make sense with the word of God? And sometimes that means not only standing in it by yourself, but taking it to your pastor, to your elders, to, to a, a person that you have confidence in their scriptural and, and, and Christian maturity and wrestling with it together. Test the overall picture. And, and then test it in detail as well. That's what I was trying to get at there. And this something, by the way, is that Paul absolutely commended in one particular group of people in Acts chapter 17. And almost everybody knows the word Berean because there's Berean bookstores and Berean this and Berean that. But the idea was is that they, in Berea, the Bereans tested everything that, that Paul said. They went back to the scripture and said, okay, let's see if he's telling the truth. Paul didn't say, well, what did you think I was here for? He said, good for you. Well done. You are noble, he said, in fact. We're called to test it and to check it out. And Paul says it's a good thing that we do. One of the key study principles that I found in Scripture and through Bible college and, and through other teachers that have mentored me as you deny, desire to know and understand one part of Scripture, uh, your first search really needs to be the rest of Scripture to see what it says about that one part. In other words, well, where else is this talked about? And what does it say there? Trying to get the whole counsel of God about something. You heard the story, and I know it's a bad, bad joke, but the story of the guy that goes and says, well, I don't know what God wants me to do today, and he goes like this in the Bible, and it says, Judas went out and hung himself. You know, uh, you know, we, you know, there's more to it than that. But the idea is, is that we're to, to, to study it and to look for it and to say, what does the whole counsel of God say about something? And I was realizing as, as I was looking at this, one area in particular is, is you know, what the word of God says, for instance, just about the sacrifice of Christ. You can spend a lifetime just studying the word of God in reference to the sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, starting with the first verse and going all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 28, you can, you'll talks about Jesus, the temple, the offerings, uh, Jesus being the sacrifice. In fact, the one key scripture there, when I look at it, is, is this idea that we teach that, uh, that Jesus is uh, once and for all the sacrifice 
and uh, verse 22 uh, of chapter 9. He says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That was the wrong scripture. Uh, but that he is the final sacrifice. Uh, he, he has been offered once to bear the sins of many. Once. It's done. goes on in chapter 10. It's done. It's finished in Christ. And, and so we're looking at what did this sacrifice do? How The reality, is it in the flesh? Did he really do it? That's where that scripture comes up. The, blood, the, the, the life is in the blood. And go back to Leviticus, and what does it say about that? It says, yes, the life is in the blood. So what is that telling us? When Christ said his blood, he physically died. It's trying to point all of that out to us. And, and so you look at, you know, tying them together. We can go back then into Romans chapter 5 and 6, and, and it talks about uh, how Jesus Christ died once and for all for us. Get excited about that one because that one's one that you can preach with absolute sureness because no matter how you turn it around, it keeps coming back to that same picture. They all work together to help me see why Jesus Christ came. And also, for the sake of, of coming to a conclusion this morning, why he instituted communion. He wanted to give us a picture until he returns a picture for for all time for the church on earth to have the incarnate god jesus christ word in the flesh the bread representing his flesh poured out his life in sacrifice once and for all on the cross the blood the wine, the cup. And he asked, and it's interesting to see, is that it, it, it was done. In the first century church, at least, we see clearly in Acts, as often as they gathered together, this one thing they did for sure. It says they broke bread together. People have said, well, breaking bread can mean eating a meal. No, I think in the context that it's put, breaking bread has to do with the significance of communion. So no matter what else we do, we try every Sunday to be able to come back to this focus. And it's the thing that really unites the body of Christ all the way around the world. The death, burial, and resurrection, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This supper or this meal or this table, however you want to term it in whatever background you come from, has been shared literally all over the world today. It is a unifying picture for us all. Doesn't emphasize speaking in tongues. Doesn't emphasize any of the gifts, but it does emphasize the key fruit of the Spirit, love. Ask the ushers to come. Ask you to pass the emblems out, please, and, and all of us, if we would hold it until we've all been served. I probably raised more questions this morning than answered, but uh, I just wanted to let you know where I'm wrestling and, and where I stand with some of this right now.
picture that that song creates, especially the, the phrase, the sorrow and love flow mingled down. Such a powerful, powerful picture of the sacrifice that Christ made for us. And the confidence that we can come together in God's grace to this time of communion, knowing that the work that's necessary to save us is finished at that point on the cross. And so, I believe in, in obedience to the word of God and to what Christ laid before us and laid before the apostles and for all of us to share until he returns. Take the bread and remember how Christ served it at that last supper. It says that he gave thanks for the bread. And I'm sure in a traditional format of, of thanksgiving, and then he broke it, and he passed it to each of the disciples to eat. And then he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm still growing in the understanding of the sacrificial system and how it points to Christ and all that it is because I never cease to be amazed at a little new thought that comes with it when you, when you start to study it again and again and again and it becomes that story that never grows old because I don't think we can exhaust it. But the reality of the picture is that blood has to be shed to cover sin. And there is no blood of man or animal on earth that can do it other than the incarnate God who became flesh, the perfect man, God-man. And he asked as often as we would do this, that we would do it in remembrance of him until he comes again. Father, we thank you that we can share around this table with the confidence of the salvation that you've purchased for us, recognizing that even now, Lord, that we, uh, Paul puts it so well, we see dimly at best, but we look forward to that time when we will know fully. And we recognize that that time will come in such a way that, that we'll all be drawn together at one time as, as your church, as your body, in your resurrection to the marriage feast, and we will have a celebration that will... Well, it'll end things the way the earth is done and, and the new heavens and the new earth, all of that yet to come. We just look into it and we, we just we are amazed and, and, and beyond anything that we can really comprehend other than glimpses that you have given us that we rest in. But we rest, Lord, with confidence because you know we know your word is God-breathed. And you've told us this. And you've showed us in so many ways over and over and over again. Both through your word, through history, and in our own lives, the reality of who you are and the promises that you've made that you'll keep. That we come with confidence saying thank you. We worship you in Jesus' name.